five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Hello and a very warm welcome. This is Phil Woodford on Colourful Radio and you're listening to episode 0301 of Five in the Eye, our weekly news review show. It's me, Mike Lohajura, joining Phil via Zoom this week and revealing that our top story is going to be the controversy surrounding former Prime Minister David Cameron and his lobbying of government on behalf of Greensill, of the Greensill business. Does the concept of shame still apply in British politics? Five in the eye. And for story number two, we catch up on the latest COVID developments. We're, we've seen an unwinding of lockdown in England. Perhaps you've had your hair cut or managed a trip to the pub. At the same time, debate is bubbling up over another vaccine. This time it's the one from Johnson & Johnson. And story number three? Well, the author, Irvin Welsh, says he's embarrassed about his aged mum reading his books. Are writers ever truly free to express themselves? For our fourth story, we cover the heartwarming tale of a nurse in Brazil who created an artificial hand for a COVID patient to hold an award. And finally this week, we we wrap up the show. We learn that we may soon all be wearing Iron Man bodysuits or exoskeletons to help us with everyday tasks. (laughs) We'll discuss that, Phil. Everyday tasks, Iron Man. You'll be able to host the show twice as fast, Michael. And that's this week's Five in the Eye. Five in the Eye. We're going to kick off the show this week with uh, former MP David Cameron and his excuses. Oh, that's right, with excuses in saying he's done nothing wrong or he did nothing wrong or he's done nothing wrong as he lobbies for this firm, Greensill, this investment, this this financial bankers who have actually gone bust. And the whole thing, it just smells... Something's not quite right here because he, he he was he was texting Rishi to see if Rishi could help. The sh- the ship's going down, Rishi. Can you help us? You know this is you know the old school you know, the old, old schoolmates together, and it doesn't smell right at all to me, Phil. And I think that distresses me. We've been here before, government. You know, mates in government, out of government now. Both politicians and civil servants, and they leave government, and they get directorships. And they're kind of um, asking questions back into um, the friends in government, and I'm just I'm minded of the the, the um, coronavirus, the the PPE, mm. and all the, the it, we don't know for certain, but there's something not quite right about the way the MPs or politicians and civil servants. And their relationship with with with, uh, with with commerce, it doesn't seem like. How, how do you feel about it, Phil? Do, 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 do you I, sense something's not quite right here? I, I sense something's very wrong. I mean, I, I I don't think it's appropriate at all for a former prime minister to be doing this this kind of lobbying. I mean, maybe I'm a naive little flower, but um, I think there should be some standards in public life that say. Phil, can I just stop you there? Standards in public life. Where did you get that line from? Well, <laughs> we have we have had uh, we, we, we we have had uh, inquiries, and we've had uh, in the past, and we've had rules set up which are supposed to govern these kinds of things. But it seems to me that there 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 are, there are loopholes here as as big as the Dartford Tunnel uh, that people can can slip through. I mean, th- this idea that um, you know the old boys network. Uh, 
people who all know each other and they're all chit-chatting, having drinks with each other, texting each other and so on. The danger of this, to my mind, one big danger, is that it's potentially outside the realms of public scrutiny. And we, we do believe in freedom of information. We've got freedom of information legislation. But actually, to know, to find the stuff under freedom of information legislation, you need to have an idea that it's there in the first place. You need to go asking the right questions. But, you know... Yeah, I, I am worried about the world of WhatsApp and Telegram and these kinds of environments where people might be chit-chatting in private and messages might get deleted and no one from the public ever knows what's gone on. And I do also think that um, there is this big issue, which we alluded to at the top of the show, which is that when people have been found to do something that by most people's standards seems incredibly dodgy, the response now seems to be, oh, well, actually, it was fine. I never did anything too bad. Um, let's get on and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, see you all again next week. There's no, sense of, there's no sense of shame, is there? Not at all. I mean, it took him ages, okay, almost a couple of weeks to come out with a, um, a response, a 1,700-word response. He ignored it in the sense he could tough it out. But you know that old maxim? If it's still after, if it's still in news after five days, you've got to do something about it or resign. Well, they don't resign now. They they try and do something about it. They make some vacuous statements, which is exactly what what Cameron did, trying to defend himself. But it seems such a a, a weak statement in the light of that. That what was it? We always used to talk about. They need the 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 oxygen, the the um the antiseptic of sunlight. Mm. The sun, the sun, like we, 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 we expose these people for what they are, and he's been exposed. There was a brilliant photo in this in the the, the papers earlier this week of him, him and um, and, and Lex Greensill in in an, an Arabian tent, in matching blue and blue suits and ties, having a cup of tea with 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 this this the um, the, the king of um, Saudi Arabia, the, the man who'd organised the killing of Khashoggi. So he's literally sitting down with the murderer there, with with a with a banker who's about to go bust, to try and carry up business. Now that was not a positive sight, there, Phil. There was no, that didn't it didn't curry favour with me that at all in terms of this is this yeah, is I mean, a man I, I, who's, I, who's living the, the, the um, life in on in in the right way. Yeah, I mean, I I I think clearly we need we need tighter rules. We do need a proper investigation to what's gone on. We don't. You know, after some recent reports, you know, particularly that report on race and ethnicity, I mean, do we have a great deal of confidence in the in the in the investigation the government's announced? I mean, I I, I think a lot of people are looking at it, and the Labour Party included this week, saying, look, we need a proper independent inquiry into what's gone on here. And I, I you know, I, I have a lot of I have a lot of sympathy with that, but I do worry that there is a broader issue, which is there's almost nothing now that a politician can do that leads to mm. them feeling obliged to resign yeah, and we, we you know the contrast you were talking to me offline the contrast with the generation of politicians like Shirley Williams she died this week and Shirley Williams as as uh, older listeners may know she was in the Labour government in the 1970s she went on to form the SDP breakaway party was then in the Liberal Democrats but she was a woman not only incredibly intelligent woman uh, and, 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 and you know with her heart in the right place but she understood things like standards didn't she she understood mm. um, the ethics of government you couldn't imagine someone like her being exposed for something like this she a she wouldn't have done it and if she had been found to have done it she would have understood 
that you resigned as a result of it. That's all gone, hasn't it? Yeah, proper old school. You had Gordon Brown saying the same things today, saying we need to look at the rules because the rules are quite, you know, relaxed and the in the sense that to rely on people's morals, you know, old boys network, they'll do the right thing. But people are clearly not doing the right thing. But Phil, you know, you talk about this shame, you know, no shame anymore. I think we maybe we should move on and take a page out of the um, of many African rulers' books, where there are many countries in Africa where the government or the leaders are, to put one of the better word, corrupt. You know, they're lining their own nest, feathering their own nest. But at the same time, they're looking after people. They're, they're putting the roads in, they're putting the hospitals, they're putting the schools in place. They're doing the things for the people at the same time. I sense these, that's the problem with these, these, these governments, both left and right, Phil. What are they doing for us? You know, so when we see these sleaze, we look, well, look, you're taking all this money. So we're the benefits. What use are you really to us as, as, as a country? Or equally to me, because all politics is ultimately local. What, 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 what are you delivering for us? So in the sense that, yeah, you know, yeah. well, I'm, I know it's a big statement for, you know, yes, you can be sleazy, corrupt, you know, that we, we expect that politicians, that's the default. But at the same time, we expect you to deliver for us. When they, do, when they don't deliver, then, you know, their time is up. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, personally, as you know, Michael, I kind of have fairly strong ethical standards on issues like this. And I don't like the idea of slipping into, say, the culture you might see in France, for instance, or some other countries in continental Europe, where it's almost taken as read that that some kind of, uh, you know, dodgy financial behaviour and personal behaviour is the norm amongst the political class. And people kind of shrug their shoulders mm. at it. I really, really hope that we don't end up completely down that road you're also absolutely right when you kind of draw comparisons with other countries though you know if we um if we saw something happen like this in sudan or we saw it happen in sicily uh, people would say it was corrupt wouldn't they uh, but when it happens in the uk we have other words for it or we we gloss over it and so on and it seems to me we we have this inbuilt belief that the british could never be like that and is that part of the problem here no i smile when you say that phil because talking to my friends about my, my african friends about this many of these leaders in africa today learned at the feet of the master of the colonial master mm. in terms of the, the craft, the graft and corruption to make things happen. You know, you bless my, you know, you bless me and I'll bless you and we'll all be blessed together. Mm. You know, money changes hands, nods and winks. And that, that, that was something that, 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 that fueled the, um, the colonialists, the people who got the, the land rights or the, 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 the rights to do trade and the like, it was money changed hands. So, the, the the when they left britain left some of those ideas in place okay yes they left an education system and a language but at the same time there was graft and corruption they left that in place and the, and it's happening today in, in in many parts of africa and we're seeing we're seeing in britain today in fact i was i had to i was minded of the do you remember the hamiltons mm. you know the cash you know cash for questions and we thought we thought that was exceptional, but then we came. It appeared that was normal. It'd been going on for years, going mm -hmm. on for years. So maybe it's it's systemic. Maybe this is a good thing. It's coming out into the open now. But at the same time, what are you doing for us? What are these? What, what is government doing for us to make life better, easier for us rather than themselves?
five in the eye. Story number two this week. Uh, we've seen the relaxation of some of the restrictions that we've been living with. Um, you know, earlier this earlier this week, we discovered we could once again go to have a drink at the pub outdoors. At least we could go and get our barnet chopped at the the barbers or the hairdressers and uh, the tv was full of journalists taking advantage of this to have uh, reports of which they also managed to get a haircut um so things are starting to get a little bit more back to normal we've the vaccine program you know it's been a bit more faltering and we've been focusing on second vaccines and so more people have been getting the second dose than getting the first um there is an issue now with a second vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It works in much the same way as the AstraZeneca one. Okay, so you could think about um, Pfizer, uh, the, 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 the Pfizer one, and I think the Moderna one. The, these are kind of newfangled technologies and the AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, a little bit more traditional. And again, there is this concern that there might be a very small, tiny group of people who could get blood clots. And governments in places like Australia have been worrying about it. So taking stock of everything in the round, Michael, as we like to do on Five in the Eye, where, where are we now with coronavirus? Uh, what's the OG verdict on where we're headed in the next few weeks and months? Sorry, Phil. Phil, I've got to be up front here. You, and you, you, you mentioned it in, your, in the opening introduction there. There's more concern about our barnets and getting our hair cut than our children at university. We've looked after everybody else, but we seem to have forgotten universities. And you're going to see, we're being extreme here. They've almost had a year out. And your, 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 your children have been involved in this, Phil. So I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a bit peeved. Uh, but first... The, the universities, nothing happening there. And then the galleries and museums, we're still going to wait for them to open. And you're going to say, well, Michael, you would say that because you you see yourself as a culture vulture. But now we seem to have, you know, this is um, uh, bread and circuses. This is the, the government bigging themselves up, seem to, seem to be doing the right, believed to be doing the right thing and leaving a whole a whole raft of our society, these students and, and people like me are interested in museums and uh galleries were left in the lurch so i think they're not doing it quite right to my mind phil yeah i mean it, the, there's there's some concern isn't there about the fact that you know still there's younger people who haven't had the vaccine and that as we relax this uh all the rules the caseload's going to go up again and so on the positive side what you know what the likes of patrick valance and chris witty would say as well look we've got the protection of vaccination of the most vulnerable people and um, even if people are still catching it and passing it on the likelihood of hospitalizations going up seems to be quite low but on the other hand what about the possibility of these variants there's a cluster in south london at the moment in wandsworth and lambeth of the south african variant and scientists seem to be quite worried about this because this could be more resistant to vaccine it could spread faster we're not out of the woods are we i mean it's the it, do you get that kind of nagging sense of doubt michael that some of us get oh my god will we ever see the back of this thing Okay, so let me be up front. I'm getting my second uh, vaccine vaccination in the uh, week after next. And so I'm, I'm feeling not smug, but I'm feeling quite confident you know, in terms of myself, in terms of the, the, the effect of coronavirus on me and, and uh, my partner. Everywhere. So we know we're safe. But I think about as a society as, as a whole, we're still not there. 
was still not safe. And they seem to, you know, when I saw those the pictures from Soho earlier this week, I was shocked. Shocked. Mm. And, and then they went on, there was reports to say that that the drop in deaths, and it's the, the extraordinary now, we're down to, you know, low double digits. And okay, they're still dreadful, the death of a person, we should, you know, we should feel for them. But it's down from the hundreds a day, you know, almost as, uh, the several hundred a day, we're down to the, the tens a day. So it's having an effect. What, what, what the what the what the um, the scientists were saying is that effect a lot has to do with the lockdown. Yeah, and opening up, there's going to be some deaths. And the, but then you have yeah, to bring no, I agree. In the, I mean, you I have think, to bring in the I, vaccine. I think that's going to cut that death rate. You know, so I'm, yeah, I'm not. I mean, I'm not you know, I mean, we, we have we have at least on, at least on this occasion. You know, we have waited now you know there will be people of course there are people who say well we haven't waited long enough and you know there 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 are people in the scientific community i'm afraid who kind of look at the the you know look at the the data and they kind of basically seem to preach something akin to permanent lockdown the government has been very cautious they've waited until such time as we've uh, you know, we vaccinated a significant proportion of the population. And critically, we have vaccinated now the people who are most likely to end up in hospital, become seriously ill. So the thinking must be surely, Michael, that even if the cases do start to rise again, that they were only being suppressed because of the lockdown, that people won't get the bug so badly, they won't end up in hospital yeah, no, no, and those death right, yeah. figures won't go up, you know? No, I'm with you there, Phil. The other thing I find very encouraging, as as a scientist, as a mathematician, as someone who believes in figures and science, or, or still trust experts, that I think, as a nation, we're trying to we we understand the figures now. When they say that the coronavirus, uh, there's there's a potential for thrombosis, and can lead to brain damage and ultimately death. People understand the figures involved. You know, it's it, there's a risk in vaccination, but the figures are so incredibly small. Exactly, you know, and we we know that no medicine is without risk. And we've said this before on Five in the Eye. You know, if you give millions of people ibuprofen, there's going to be a handful of people who have some kind of reaction to it. And exactly, and, and and coronavirus kills one in a thousand. One in a thousand. So when you look at the percentages, and it's great that people are understanding that now, and we're working with, and the government are, are, are getting that message across. Um, I think that's so important because the vaccines are making a difference, as does the lockdown. But people are accepting the facts now and not, are not kind of saying, well, I'm not having the AstraZeneca because of this, because of the, the chance of getting the thrombosis. And it's made even, again, the situation even made complex by the Johnson & Johnson. The, again, they've, they've found thrombosis, the possibility of thrombosis there. And equally, the figures are quite small, infinitely small. And this expression, abundance of caution, abundance of caution. And I tried to understand it in the sense that, well, this thing can kill you, you know, so maybe you should, you know, throw caution to the wind and take have the vaccine. Well, exactly. I mean, you should, the thing we, we really need the abundance of caution about is COVID, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, this is the thing that's the bigger threat. Uh, I've had the first AstraZeneca jab. I will have the second one. I, I, I know that I'm not, you know, the clots are perhaps more associated with younger people and with women, and maybe I'm not perhaps as much at risk, but I think there's a small risk, a tiny, tiny, tiny risk uh, of having the AZ vaccine. What I know is that the risk of not having it is a lot 
bigger, a lot, lot bigger. And so from my point of view, uh, it's vaccines all the way, Michael, I'm afraid to say. Live in the eye. Story number three is about Irvin Welsh. <laughs> and it made me smile this day because he said he was, he was embarrassed when his mum read his stories because there are some quite, I was going to say, disgusting, horrible scenes that Irvin was because he paints life for the, the, the for in, in Scotland's drug community, as is, as is. Now, I have to put a disclaimer here, Phil. I actually took Train Spotting back, the book back, <laughs> because it was in, I was going to say Scottish Patois. It's not Patois, but it was in Scottish dialect, and I couldn't read it. It was just too hard. I took it back and said, this is in a foreign language. And I got my money back. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Irvin Welsh, but he makes a good, he makes a good point here. It, it, it's an embarrassment because authors do have to go on the edge. If they're really going to write things that are cutting edge, that reflect life as is, then they do have to expose us themselves as to who we are. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, so you know, I, I'm sure he's going to be embarrassed by his mum. His mum, if his mum reads his stuff. Well, you know, I mean, my my daughter, as you know, Michael, she's studying English, and uh, she's uh, she's a writer, and she she um, uh, you know she writes poetry and uh, and other stuff. And we, mum and dad, don't get to see it all. I can assure you. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously, if we hunted high and low for it, we'd probably find stuff that she's she's written, but she doesn't particularly want to share it with us. Why would she? Likewise, I mean, if I'm writing something I, and I felt that it was going to be eventually read by my mum and dad or by my daughters, yes, I might think twice about what I wrote because, I mean, I, 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 I sometimes, for instance, we, I mean, we all make these judgments, don't we? I mean, you and I, we're friends on Facebook. And sometimes I might put across provocative views on Facebook because I know pretty much the network of friends I've got and they know me. But would I say the same thing on Twitter? Maybe not because there it's a much wider circle of people. They might not get the nuances. They might not know who I am and they might not understand I was joking. And so, so it's, yeah, these are quite difficult judgments, aren't they? Isn't that what great writing is about? You know, you tell it like it is, you know, publishing be damned, you know, mm. that sense of being true to yourself, being realistic, being truthful, you know, and at the same time, you know, you're going to, you, you, inevitably you're going to offend somebody, mm. and it, but it works both ways. Sometimes, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself, when a friend brings a book out, I just, I like to look in the index, am I in the index? Am I in the acknowledgements? You know, if I'm not, <laughs> you know, it says if you're not there. Because you, you have such a rarefied group of friends, what can I say? <laughs> all, all two of them, all two of them. <laughs> but, that, but, that, but that sense of you being included, you know, if you then you're part of it. But at the same time, the writer has to be sensitive, not tell the whole truth. And that's why, I, you know, my, my memoirs will be published after my death. Hmm. posthumously yeah 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 i mean you know i i i often think like if i sat down and wrote the story of my life um how is that the sentence phil come on let's get <laughs> a couple of sentences the paragraph 
how how true to myself would I be? And then how, you know, I, I would I would always be thinking, I think, at the back of my mind about how people would perceive me. I am someone who cares what people think. And if 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 think people think badly of me for some reason, that upsets me. So as a writer, I do think that's an inhibition. And the writing that I do, because as you as you know, as listeners know, I, I work as a copywriter and I train people in in writing. The writing I do commercially. It's always judged. There's always people looking at it and saying, you haven't said the right thing here. No, we want it to say this. And I'm molding it to be what they want it to be. And so I'm always thinking about what other people want and what other people will read into it. And that's difficult to shake off. Well, isn't, isn't that what the writer does? He writes for himself. He writes for nobody else. He's not interested in anyone else's opinions. He's, he's in the mood or he or she is in the moment and the writing. And invariably, you know, there was... Autobiographies are all about are never to be about successes. There's very few failures in in um, in, in autobiographies, and uh, unless they, they they turn into success. Obviously, so Michael, I, I I would have to return your autobiography because I wouldn't be able to understand the scouse. I'm going to ignore that comment, Philip, because it'd be written in the finest, the finest scouse <laughs> talking dead proper. You know what I mean, like. Having said that, there's no no sense in talking like that. Who's going to buy it? Uh, so no, I, I think I think the Welsh is right. Irvin Welsh is right to be concerned. But then on the other hand, if he wasn't, then what is he? Who is he writing for? Who, who is he? Wouldn't be as successful if he wasn't as on the edge. So I guess if you're not doing it, then you're not being true to yourself, Phil. I guess you, you've got to, as a writer, you know, Irvin Welsh. Uh, get over it and get on with it. And I think the message. I, I could say, I, I, take the money and run. <laughs> I think the message to mums everywhere is just don't read it. Live in the eye. Story number four this week uh, is a really quite touching story because uh, it comes from Brazil, where as 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 we know, there's been a kind of disastrous outbreak of COVID, um, which has been fueled by the ignoramus that occupies the office of presidency, uh, Mr. Bolsonaro, um, who is kind of a complete COVID denialist. And they've had 350,000 people die. So it's a terrible, terrible situation there. But the um, uh, one of the kind of tragedies of these very busy hospital wards where they're trying to cope with COVID is obviously relatives can't come in and be with their loved ones when they're dying. And it's that physical touch that um, the nurses feel that the patients need in those terrible, terrible times. And there was a nurse in Brazil who'd actually created the artificial sensation for a patient that they did have a hand on them. And she'd actually filled up surgical gloves with water and put them around the, the hand. And, um, it gave the sensation to this COVID patient that maybe they were, you know, with someone that 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 loved them and and cared for them. Uh, what did you make of this, Michael? Oh, I, I, it was a picture. It just it just looks so bizarre. You have got this rubber glove it was wrapped around this. I two rubber gloves filled with warm water wrapped around this hand, and the catch line: "Wonderfully creative and compassionate." And it just. Oh. It just shows you how horribly desperate this coronavirus thing is. Because I was minded of the story of the the, um, the the chap who couldn't attend his mother's, no, the mother who couldn't attend their son's funeral. The nearest she could get to him was to actually touch the coffin. She mm. couldn't touch him. 
because he died of coronavirus is just horrible. That because we all got that that human touch, you know, the fact that you know that, that and it, it literally that healing touch, because to, you know t- t- touch does heal you, heal you, and the, and to be denied it, to be denied it is just oh, well, well, we've got a year of it now over over a year. Well, I'm, 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 I'm sure you know there will be listeners who've been touched by you know COVID here in the UK and this business of being removed from the people you love and not being able to go and see them is is really horrendous and people having these discussions over you know ipads and and and, and so on there's no real way around this is there michael i mean it's to, the the bug is so contagious the hospitals are so busy the staff are so stressed it's difficult really to see how this can be resolved not, not exactly and for me i was i was minded of um a good friend of mine passed away during the pandemic and went to his funeral. And funerals are one place where you, you, you kind of want, you want to hug each other in terms of, you know, you remember, remember the person wanted to hug each other. We had none of that. And, and what we did, we, we, someone brought a piece of string. So, so we were all connected by this piece of string. Okay, we couldn't touch each other and give each other a hug and a reassuring that hug, the hug of love. But I guess that, that that piece of string was 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 a bit like this rubber glove here. This we're filled with warm water. It's a kind of a surrogate for that kind of thing that we all need as human beings. That 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 loving touch. So no, that that's um, a re- really powerful, powerful picture and shows you just how desperate things are in these uh, these times and how def- desperate things are in Brazil. Five in the eye. Our final story this week. It's one that Phil wanted to do because it involved Iron Man. Well, I know nothing about Iron Man, but apparently he's got this exoskeleton. He's capable of lifting great things because there's a company in America now making this exoskeleton, and it seems that this is going to be the future. So it could turn us all into supermen. We'll be able to lift great weights. Now, the thing that's distressed me about this, this is robotics and artificial intelligence. So I'm tempted to myself. I'm tempted to say, "Well, why do we need human beings? Why can't we just use robots and AI mm. to do the, do the heavy lifting?" It seems very dangerous. I thought it was great where this company had come from because they were made prosthetics for um, the veterans, for legs and arms and such things. And I can see how that would work. You'd need to create an arm or a leg. But why would I want to create an arm and a leg that could lift a gird or lift a bridge? I just get really in a robot to do that. So Phil, I'm sorry. This is. Uh, you know, I'm not into this at all. I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure if the application is quite kind of bridges and girders being lifted. Isn't it? Isn't it more that you're in a kind of warehouse environment and, you know, there's heavy things to lift and, and, and there's always a danger you're going to kind of slip a disc or you're going to have an accident or something like that. And if you have one of these exoskeletons, everything just becomes that bit easier it's supporting your it's supporting your body you're less likely to do yourself damage is there anything wrong with that no but why do you need a human being why don't you just put a robot system into place altogether so i've got the automated factories so no for this ai this uh, the idea of being able to lift lift a car single-handedly and look underneath it why not just have a, 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 a an automatic arm to do it for you rather than you physically being connected to this thing. And then, sorry, my my imagination runs away with me because when they talk about AI and artificial intelligence and, and software, what if it goes wrong and then it starts crushing you rather than picking up the thing? It turns on you. 
No, I mean, no, this, this is my imagination running wild. I'm sorry, Phil. But so put me in one of these suits? No. It sounds like a, a short story, a sci-fi story there, Michael, the exoskeleton that turned on, it, it turned on its own. Literally, you pressed the wrong button. You know, so rather than going forward, the thing comes backwards to you. And it starts mm. going for your face, your head, whatever. No, I'm, I'm sorry. This is a okay for me personally. I'm not. I'm not having one. And if anyone gets them one, I would suggest they 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 hire a robot, a robot to do to do the uh, do the same job. Five in the eye. Well, that's it for another week. The two iron, <laughs> the two iron men of five in the eye. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed. If you want to get in touch with us, please do visit our Facebook page where we post up links to the stories we're considering for next week's episode. For now, I'm Phil Woodford, and I'd like to wish you the very best for the week ahead. And this is me, Michael O'Hajuru, saying, if you have been, thanks for listening. Do join us next week at the same time on Colourful Radio. Goodbye. Five in the Eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?